I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Today on Trade Guys, we'll talk about all the China bills circulating in Congress and how China is pushing back. Plus, we'll talk about the latest disputes at the WTO, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, we're back, and there's several proposals in Congress that we need to talk about. These are proposals that call for screening of America's investments in China. The first thing I'm thinking of is Senator Cornyn of Texas, who's one of the Senate's foremost China hawks, has proposed scaling back a highly contested proposal to apply new scrutiny on U.S. investments in China. Bill, what about that? Well, it's been an interesting step. I'm inclined to think he's sort of negotiating with himself, but it's clear there's been a lot of resistance from the business community to uh, the original Cornyn Casey proposal, which would have provided for an outbound uh, investment review process. And I think we've talked about this before. The objections really were the the breadth of, of the provision, which would really apply not just to investments, but to transactions, which means almost anything. And it would leave it to the executive branch to define what that meant. It sets up a fairly cumbersome 19 agency, as I recall, committee process to do this. And it puts the leadership in, in USTR, which USTR has made clear it doesn't want, it doesn't have the bandwidth to do. And I think it was done primarily for jurisdictional reasons because the issue first came up in the finance committee. And to get it into the finance committee, you had to have a trade nexus. So what better trade nexus than putting it in USTR, even though that makes no sense. What Cornyn has now done is produced a document that attempts to narrow the scope of the provision substantially. And what it would do First of all, it would make it perspective only. So all current investments are grandfathered. It would require notification of proposed investments only for those that are being made by, well, companies who've gotten money under what he refers to as the Bipartisan Innovation Act, which I think is going to be the name for the China bill that's now in conference. So if you're getting federal money from that, then you would be covered by this. Second, and this is the one that would be subject to debate, is it will only apply to sectors that were covered by President Biden's executive order 14017. That was the executive order 15 months ago that directed supply chain studies in selected sectors. And the problem with that is that while part of the order deals with four very specific sectors, which are critical, batteries, critical minerals, chips, and pharma slash PPE, as I recall, the same executive order went on to direct studies in other broader areas like transportation, energy, agriculture, that cover 60% of our GDP. If Cornyn is referring to the entire executive order, he's not narrowed the field very much. If he's referring only to those four critical sectors, then that's significant. But the document that he provided is not clear about that. And it says private sector input will be key in the identification of those supply chain sectors, which means he intends that the private sector actually be consulted, which would be kind of a new thing on this. And the third category would be beneficiaries of government contracts with national security agencies. 
or contracts that have a purpose of protecting national security above a de minimis threshold. So there'll be some dollar amount below which we wouldn't worry about the investment. That amount is not specified in his document. So that would be to be negotiated. And if you're selling stuff to the Defense Department, to the CIA, to NSA, then you're probably going to get caught up in this if you are also proposing investments in other locations. So there's some other things too, but that's about it. It may be a narrowing, but it may not be that big a narrowing. The the process is a little bit odd to me because, as I said, it's like he's negotiating with himself. The business community is simply against the whole thing. Secretary Yellen and the Treasury Department have apparently floated a proposal that would be way, 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 way less than any of this. Basically, a, a pilot program and a report which I don't think is getting any traction on the Hill at all. It may also simply be a realization by Cornyn that he probably doesn't have the votes to get the whole loaf. And so this is an attempt to uh, scale back and get as much as he can. I've not seen much reaction to it. And the other thing that's interesting about it is it appears to be Cornyn only and not Casey, who was his partner in, in this from the beginning. I think there's a reason for that. Cornyn has always been much more focused on national security. Casey has always been much more focused on economic competitiveness and not wanting to give China additional means to compete with us industrially. So it wouldn't surprise me if this is not something that Casey supports. Scott, what do you think? Well, look, I I understand at least some of the reservations that actual investors might have to this. But just to get to the definitions is one way of identifying how many problems this causes. Let me start by saying I'm not sure what problems it actually solves. What is gained from this, given the massive export controls regime and other inbound investment I can uh, screening? That. Believe it or not, I can answer that. Okay, good. Do you want me to, or do you want to go on? Give me just a minute, because I want to talk about, I don't even know what is a U.S. investment, mostly because there are many U.S. headquartered multinationals who invest all over the world But not all that investment originates in or it can be characterized as U.S. investment. There was an example a few years back, General Electric. What could be more American than General Electric, company founded by Thomas Edison? Not much. Great American firm. They had a power contract to develop power generating infrastructure in India. And the investment from GE was characterized as an investment from their Mauritius subsidiary for many reasons not the least of which is Mauritius had an investor protection treaty with India, and the United States didn't. Lots of other places don't. Uh, we don't well. typically talk a did. lot about Mauritius on this podcast. This is this well, might yeah, be first. It's, it, it, it's odd that it comes up, but so is that U.S. investment? I don't think so. It, it was never characterized as such. But this is a key issue, is the fact that a company operates in the U.S. or is headquartered in the U.S. does not automatically characterize its foreign investment as American investment. So you have similar definitions is, so what's the information and communications technology sector? Would that include the assembly of Apple phones? Well, Apple phones are assembled by a company called Foxconn, which is a Taiwanese-based company, never been an American company. It's just a supplier to Apple. Certainly, it would be part of the information and communication technology sector, but it's by no means an American investment. Those questions alone raise some issues. The second broader concern I have, and then we'll get to export controls, but we've lived in a world for 13 or 14 years where money's been free. As you saw, the Federal Reserve yesterday is trying to move off that zero bound and trying to deal with inflation. And because it's been a global zero interest rates, 
since quantitative easing of 2009, there's an effort to coordinate so you don't have capital flight going on from one jurisdiction or another. I would note monetary policy is affecting the euro, the yen, the pound, all of which are trading at multi-year lows. The dollar's at a multi-year high. Tax policy matters for these things, but frankly, investment policy matters too. It's one of these things that I just tread cautiously given what's going on in the world. But that's beyond the point. I don't even know what they're talking about. So, Bill, I teed up an early question and didn't let you answer it. Yeah, Bill, jump in here. The argument that is made to justify this, and I, I don't agree with it, but the argument that is made is that existing export controls don't address venture capital or know-how. The venture capital argument is technically it's wrong on both counts because if the issue is transfer of technology, if technology is transferred as the result of an investment, then it's covered by our export control rules, regardless of the form or the nature of the investment, because the controls are on technology. I mean, basically, the U.S. policy now follows the technology. It doesn't follow the money. I think the argument is that if you're a venture capitalist or you might be investing in some kind of Chinese firm that does startups in China, so you might not know where your money is going, and then you wouldn't file because you wouldn't know. Then I think the question becomes, is that per se bad? Or is the real issue here, is there a technology transfer? That argument kind of changes the question, which is, do we want to prevent the Chinese from acquiring, in this case, it's not just China, but we'll use that as a template. Do we want to prevent the Chinese from acquiring American technology? Or is the real purpose here to prevent them from having the resources that allows them to develop new technology of their own that might challenge us? That's very different. And that's not what export controls are for. So if that's your goal, then yeah, there's a gap. The other gap, which is know-how, I think is pretty clearly covered by export controls. I've got a wonderful story about that, which unfortunately I can't give you because it's proprietary and probably <laughs> probably classified. But know-how is an issue and know-how is covered by commerce rules. So, yeah, deemed exports is basically all about. It's really the question of money. Well, we're not going to waterboard you to get the uh, classified information out of you today, Bill. Too bad because it's a good story, but I can't talk <laughs> about it. All right. On China's part, they're saying that they're waiting on us. And they poked us last week and said they're willing to engage on the U.S. on trade issues, but they're waiting for the Biden administration to delineate a clear strategy for how it wants to move its relationship with China forward. In fact, coming from the Chinese embassy here in D.C., one of them said, so far it seems to us, this is a direct quote, that there is no official strategy with respect to how to deal with China economically and also in terms of trade on the part of the United States. China stands ready to work on these issues. Well, given what we've said at this program in the past several episodes, uh, I don't think we disagree with them, uh, but it, uh, it, does, it doesn't move the conversation along much. No. It's, sort of, uh, it's a you-mama joke in trade speak between diplomats. So Yeah, they, I mean, they're, they're sort of right. We don't really have that policy. As, as, we're, as we're having this conversation right now, Secretary of State Blinken is giving a speech somewhere else about China policy, although he's not expected to answer any of the questions that we're talking about. So we'll, we'll see if we know more later on today. But I mean, the other part and the reason why I think Scott is right that it's sort of a joke is that it kind of begs the question of whether the Chinese are really interested in having the discussion they claim that we're not, we have not initiated. I mean, they're right. We don't have a policy. We aren't really initiating anything. But I have a feeling that if we did, they wouldn't be interested. 
or their response would just be, well, you know, we're not going to do what you want. End of story. So this is just posturing. Yes. Uh, yes, right. For instance, last week, Ambassador Tai was asked a question about Chinese tariffs and their effect on inflation, which is not the whole story of inflation, of course, but is not an insignificant factor. It's a legitimate question, and, to be sure. And she held out that, look, we don't want to give up negotiating leverage. But this, uh, the Chinese are basically making the point that nobody's negotiating anything. What do you need leverage for if we're not negotiating? So it's just a, it's a playground taunt as much as anything else. But that happens in our world. So the other thing that's happening on the Hill is Senator Bob Menendez, who introduced a bill that would establish an anti-coercion task force. What's the goal of that proposal and how would it affect trade? Well, I read through it briefly and uh, it's a very interesting uh, Senator Menendez is a longtime chair or ranking member of the Foreign Relations Committee for a long time. But I'm trying to figure out what he wants to do that wasn't already covered in the 2018 reform of export controls. We do work with allies in the export controls business. Bill used to run that in a prior administration and has been to enough dull meetings that he can't talk about here to establish that, yes, we do a lot of international coordination. So I'm not really sure what, what the aim of this is. The easy part is about coordination amongst agencies inside the United States. Menendez apparently feels that state, commerce, defense, energy, you name it, are not all working together with common purpose with respect to China. This is always a problem in every administration. It's uh, what he's got in the bill is mostly sort of rhetoric. You know, it's we should all, you know, he sets up processes for better cooperation. Hard to be against that. You know, we ought to be cooperating. The meat of it is what Scott referred to, which is the export control part. And I think it's both unnecessary and, and actually probably harmful. What he wants to do is to get basically the key countries that are involved in making semiconductor manufacturing equipment, basically. He wants to get them together and agree on, amongst themselves, tighter export controls to China. So that means the United States, Japan, Korea, and the Netherlands, really. I mean, it's a small group of countries that make high-end chip manufacturing equipment. And there's not, that's not a problem. The reality is that, as far as I know, the United States is already doing that. We already have those discussions. We're having those discussions with exactly those countries. And we are trying to get agreement on exactly what Mineta's wants agreement on. So it's already underway. The thing that is, I think, harmful potentially is I believe the bill goes on to say that once that agreement is achieved, if and when it is achieved, then the law, this, if this bill became law, would prohibit semiconductor exports to China. And that is problematic if it means all chip exports, if it refers only to the stuff that would be covered by the agreement amongst the four countries, then it doesn't really matter at all because the agreement presumably would be a commitment by the four, including us, not to ship that stuff. So having a law that says you can't ship that stuff is not a problem. But if his purpose is to say, once you've got this agreement, you can't ship anything in that sector, that's going to go way beyond the agreement which is going to be focused on manufacturing equipment and not on chips. And so if Menendez's goal is to stop the shipment of chips to China, that's a huge expansion of control authority. And it would basically kneecap our chip industry because they make a large amount of money selling low-end chips, commodity chips is what they're called, to like automobile industries and appliance manufacturers and people that use commodity chips 
and they sell them all over the world, including to China. And that's what provides the revenue that permits R&D on next generation chips and the more advanced products, which, by the way, our Defense Department needs. So if that's where Menendez is going, it's really harmful. Bill, I keep hearing that we don't have enough chips. And so like trying to go buy a car these days, you know, they'll tell you, well, there's a real shortage and the car is going to be more expensive because we don't have chips. And they're going to say the car is going to be delayed because we don't have chips. And the same with, you know, home appliances. Look, no, no disrespect to Chairman Menendez. I think he does a terrific job and has for many years. So I'm, a, I'm actually a fan of his. I think he has great staff and they work on the, the important issues for the country. But I think this is one of these situations where, what's the phrase? Nature abhors a vacuum. And I think there's no clear direction being set for any number of reasons. And that is building frustration with key members of Congress who, who are looking for ways to fix the problems they've identified. And so I think in both the case of Senator Cornyn and Senator Menendez, some of that is going on here, that they're frustrated with where things are. They're not satisfied with the direction that may or may not be taken by the administration, and they're inserting themselves in it. So it's not unusual, and perhaps given what's been going on the last year or two, not all that surprising. All I can say is, in a couple of weeks, I got to go buy my kid a new Jeep, and I don't want them to tell me that there's no chips. This is a slight digression, but I think it's an interesting one. When I was in the NFTC, at one point, we, we have had board meetings three times a year. And one board meeting was devoted to, you know, the world is coming to an end. What do we do about it? And we had speakers that provided a number of different disaster scenarios. And we had one guy who came in. It was just fascinating. And he wrote a novel about this, which is where I'm going with this. He was talking about solar flares, basically during the Civil War that knocked out telegraph systems all over the Western Hemisphere. Because what happens when a solar flare a big one hits is it's very disruptive technologically and it wipes out electronic communications. It wipes out chips. There was one that knocked out power in Quebec in, I think, 1969 for a couple of weeks. And his point was solar flares follow like a 10 or 11, 12 year cycle. At that point, we were headed into a peak. We need to worry about it. But what was relevant to what Andrew said is he, he had written a novel about this, which begins with basically power going out because of a giant well, cataclysmic events. A cataclysmic, yeah. he, it's an unspecified cataclysmic event. It's deliberately unspecified. It probably was. Sounds like a great novel. It probably was a nuclear explosion in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. but it mimicked what a solar flare did. And so all power went out. And the th- interesting thing was that, of course, if you were in a, this takes place in rural Virginia, if you were in a rural community, you didn't know if power went out just where you were or if it was also out 100 miles away or 50 miles away because you couldn't tell. And that then led to the transportation question. Can we get out of town to find out? And it turned out because cars use chips, all of which were fried by this event, there were only two cars in town that were operational, which was a 1952 Beetle and a 1956 Edsel. And the hero of the story, his father-in-law was a Ford car dealer who had an Edsel left over from the 50s. And he started driving around in that. Those two cars were the only ones with no chips. So what you are doing for your son is buying him something that's going to be highly vulnerable going forward. Oh, no. And you, you should think about Edsel's. You should not be thinking about. <laughs> where, where can I get one? Well, just send him to bringatrailer.com. There you go. And there are lots of interesting, weird cars for sale every single day. 
It's an auction site, online auction site. Oh, who knew? Uh, many in very good conditions, but it's interesting stuff and it doesn't require chips. In fact, a recent auction was a 1950 Ford 8N tractor, which is a very similar tractor to the one I used to bale hay and uh, spread manure on my grandfather's farm. No kidding. So I have fond memories of a Ford 8N. And believe me, there was nothing electronic on it. So how old were you when you were driving this tractor, Scott? Uh, 13. <laughs> Fully grown, I could reach, uh, reach the pedals. So what's the problem? <laughs> you don't need yeah, a driver's right? license for off-road tractors, apparently. At least not in Ohio. No, no it's, uh, it was called parents. So <laughs> there you have it. So guys, we also have time today to talk about the latest business in the WTO. To me, this is a little strange, but... Turkey is taking on the EU over pharmaceuticals? Like, what is this? Well, basically, there has been a long dispute between Turkey and the European Union, or European communities, as they're called in the WTO. The dispute centers around Turkey's requirement for local production of certain pharmaceuticals. That's the essence of it. So there's, there's a dispute. It's covered by the trade rules, but the trade dispute settlement system doesn't work. And what Turkey is proposing to do is they've actually read the rule book, which is what we call GATT 94. And there was this so-called uh, Article 25 provision, which is an arbitration section. So uh, the Article 25 is a rare appeal method, correct? Correct. It's when you can't agree, this is a basically an arbitration device that if both parties agree, you can use an independent arbitration to resolve the dispute. That's what, that's what the subject is and hasn't gone much further than that. Bill's probably got some things he'd like to add. These kinds of appeals are like the things that Bill... You know, this is fun for Bill. <laughs> it's, they're fun to watch. This is a case. It's not, <laughs> I knew it. It's, it's not Turkey taking on the EU. It's actually the EU taking on Turkey. Right. Oh, it's a Turkish provision. It's a localization provision. You're going to see yeah. this going forward, probably with Buy America. When, we, when, when that begins to bite here, countries arguing that we, you can't do that in the way the Turks did it. And, and as I recall, I actually looked at the opinion and I think both sides lost part and, and one part, but the Turks are unhappy. And so they've decided to appeal the panel decision. And as our listeners know, you know, there's no appellate body anymore, at least for the time being. So they're going to use Article 25, which, as Scott said, is rare. I can't think of another time it's ever been used. It's entirely flexible in the sense that it basically says if the parties get together and agree on a procedure, that's OK. You know, and it could be any procedure that they agree on. You have to agree on who the arbitrator is going to be. Is it going to be one or is it going to be a panel of them? You know, one common approach is you have three. You know, the EU picks one, Turkey picks one, and then the two of them pick another one. Or maybe you only have one. Do you pick from a list? You know, and if so, who's on the list? And what are the qualifications? What are the rules? Uh, can other countries file briefs and intervene? You know, all of this gets worked out amongst the parties, which is what makes it interesting. And if you can do that, Potentially, if it works, it provides some relief from the absence of an appellate body. It doesn't exactly advance the ball. Point of the appellate body in the end was to produce decisions that were final, even if somebody didn't like it. And arbitration does the same thing. You know, you agree going in to abide by the result. But under Article 25, before you do that, you have to agree on all the details of how it's going to work. And that might produce a lot of jockeying for position. The Turks may want, you know, more arbitrators. The EU may want less. The Turks may want some particular kind of process. The EU may want a different one. You know, this has got a long way to go before it amounts to anything. But it's an interesting effort to use an obscure rule to get around the problem that really the United States has created. 
yeah, it's a workaround for the demise of the of the appellate body. Now, I don't think it changes much in the world. In fact, if the WTO wants to retain relevance, I'd really suggest they work on food security. Fortunately, the chairman of the agriculture negotiations, the ambassador from Costa Rica, is making that same pitch that the world has a big problem and not enough calories being produced. Food security is going to become a critical issue. And if you want to do something the world cares about, do that. Don't worry about our. Don't worry about Article Twenty Five. Yeah. Well, we didn't have time to talk about Ukraine today, and and of course that relates deeply to food security. For next time, we'll jump back into that, guys. Thanks a million today for your wonderful insights, as always. All right. See you next week. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis That's tradeguys at csis We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.